our scripture reading. We're going to be in uh, Revelation. This is the fourth in our series now, and so I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word in Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. So I hope you have your Bibles. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. To the angel in, of the church in Theatera write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Theatera, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule with them, rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, as we enter this time of meditation on your word, as we hear it proclaimed, we pray that as your Holy Spirit is present, present in the writing of this word, present in the hearing of this word, present and at work in our midst, that we will not be the same because you are here and you are at work in our lives. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, recently I heard of a man who wanted a boat more than anything in the world. His wife kept refusing, but he bought one anyway. I'll tell you what, he told her afterwards, in the spirit of compromise, why don't you name the boat? Now, being a good sport, she accepted. And when her husband went to the dock for his maiden voyage, this is the name he saw painted on the side, for sale. Yeah, those of you who are smirking will be telling that later. Okay, so now similar to what we saw last week with the church at Pergamum, so too this church was dealing with accommodation to the world. Jesus is building upon this issue with this letter to Theatera. So let's talk about uh, the term compromise first. Compromise that can be viewed in a very negative way or a very positive way. So let me uh, talk first about uh, compromise in a positive way. Here's one of the definitions of compromise. A settlement of differences 
by mutual concessions, an agreement reached by adjustment of conflicting or opposing claims or principles. Okay? Most uh, sound relationships are filled with this kind of compromise, aren't they? Things like, uh, honey, we'll go eat Mexican today as you want, and tomorrow we'll eat at my favorite restaurant. That's a, a good compromise. It helps to settle disputes and differences on issues that people might feel strongly about, but ultimately aren't really vital or essential issues. Living at peace with others will often require some level of compromise, and it takes wisdom and humility to discern those areas where we can compromise and on what areas we can't. One friend uh, told me that his wife wanted a cat, and he didn't want a cat, so they compromised and got a cat. That's not really compromise. Let me, uh, let me give you a historical example that includes what most people and most historians consider to be a combination of both good and bad compromise. It was uh, July 16, 1787. A plan proposed by Roger Sherman and Oliver Ellsworth, Connecticut's delegates to the Constitutional Convention, and they, the plan was to establish a two-house legislature, the Great Compromise, or the Connecticut Compromise, as it's often been referred to, was a compromise, a solution that between uh, larger and smaller states over their representation in this newly proposed government. The larger states believed that representation should be based proportionally on their contribution that each state made to the nation's finances and, and defense. And the smaller states believed that the only fair plan was one of equal representation of each state. The compromise proposed by Sherman and Ellsworth provided for a dual system of representation, which is what we have now. In the House of Representatives, each state's numbers of seats would be proportional to their population. And in the Senate, all the states would have the same number of seats. So on July 16, 1787, the convention adopted what is referred to as the Great Compromise. And you know uh, how close the vote was when they agreed? By one vote. One vote. Most would uh, consider this to be a pretty good compromise on a very divisive issue. It allowed a, a certain balance between the both opposing positions. Now, part of this compromise was another compromise that many consider to be a very bad one. You see, the uh, population of the South was relatively low at the time if you didn't consider the slaves. So they fought very hard to include that population in their representation, despite the fact that slaves didn't have a vote. The North didn't want to include them in the count, they compromised by counting them as three-fifths of a vote. The compromise ended up delaying what would eventually become a civil war and, and for, unfortunately further devalued those human beings. So there's a, another important definition of compromise that has nothing really positive to it. Merriam-Webster's dictionary puts it this way, a concession to something derogatory 
or prejudicial. It has to do with compromise of one's principles. And this is the kind of compromise that is most often dealt with in the Bible. It is compromising and being compromised by our choices, our choices to abandon our biblical convictions. And this is uh, point one for those who like to keep notes. It's point one in your outline there in your bulletin. Compromising and being compromised on essential doctrine, essential beliefs, essential ethical living, and essential disciplinary issues. And we see all this kind of combined in this letter to the church in Theatera. So uh, let's dive in here and get a little bit of the historical setting first. Theatera was uh, on a major trade route, and it was well known for its trade guilds. There were carpenters, dyers, that is, uh, those who dye cloth, Sellers of goods, tanners, weavers, tent makers, all making a living from that trade. Um, for those of you who have uh, maybe looked or studied at Acts, in Acts, uh, if, if Luke records uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, a woman named Lydia, who, who uh, they met in Philippi. She was a trader of fine cloth. And she came from Theatera, as we're told. She was one of Paul's first converts when he visited Theatera on his second missionary journey. So let me uh, talk about these guilds. These guilds were somewhat similar to uh, American trade unions. But uh, these guilds at Theatera differed from trade unions in that they were linked with the worship of certain idols and gods. In fact, each guild had its particular guardian god. And so as a member, you would be expected to attend all the functions and participate in all the activities, which included offerings to idols, feasts, and very often immoral behavior as well. The members of the church in Theatera were faced then with a horrible dilemma. They were faced with the choice making a living, having to be part of those guilds. You couldn't opt out. And participating in the worship of idols and in participating in immoral acts. That was, on the one hand, you could do that, or you could be faithful to Christ and His standards. See, the required banquets and celebrations of the guild members usually took place in pagan shrines and in pagan temples. And that also added to their dilemma. And if they don't participate, they don't make a living. This is where faithfulness is really tested. When it means that we'll have to make severe sacrifices. This is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Most of us in the Western world have rarely faced making a decision of standing true to our faith and sacrificing our careers or making a living. Yet this is what the Christians faced during much of the era of the early church. Not only the risk of losing a per your life, but also losing all that they had worked for financially, all that they had worked toward in the career goals. And the temptation to compromise those beliefs was a very strong one. 
And sadly, we're hearing more and more stories of Christians in the Western world who are losing their businesses because they refuse to compromise on the values that the Christian faith engenders in their lives. And so we're seeing this building even here in America. Now, interestingly, this is uh, probably the smallest and most insignificant of the cities that John writes to, and yet it's the longest letter. So let's uh, take a closer look at this because it's clearly an important one. And the first thing we get in this letter is another remarkable picture of Jesus. He is described here as the Son of God. And by the way, this is the only time Jesus is referred to as the Son of God in Revelation. But it's an important allusion to Psalm chapter 2, which let me read a couple of verses from that. I have installed my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. You hear the echo here from Revelation? See, the context of this psalm is that kings and rulers of the earth plot against God and God's Messiah King. And what we're going to be seeing throughout this book of Revelation is how that, that that's exactly how Satan works. He uses his influence and power in this world through political powers and conflicting philosophies to plot against God's Messiah and God's people. But God ultimately promises that His Son has authority over the world. God will make all nations His inheritance and the ends of the world His possession. And when the church in Theatera heard the name of the Son of God and the echoes of Psalm chapter 2, they'd be reminded that Jesus has ultimate authority in a world which is hostile to Jesus. Matthew uh, 28.18, remember when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? See, Christ has authority, whether we like it or not. Look how uh, he's described here. He's also described as having eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. See, the reference here is to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, where Daniel sees a vision of a man who tells him of kings and nations that would terrorize and persecute the people of God. But Daniel was not to fear. Why? Because although kings and people of the earth are hostile to God and to God's people, God and His Messiah are sovereign, even over those hostile rulers. And the images of the flaming eyes are often used in the Old Testament to picture God's eyes that see everything. They penetrate all masks, all walls, all pretensions, all deceptions. He knows everything. And His eyes are flaming because He is angry with what He sees. His feet are bronze, which, by the way, is the hardest metal known in that time. And it's often used to speak of judgment. 
Jesus was therefore angry, so angry, that he preparing to come with judgment. So there are two sides to this picture. First, there's the comforting side of this to the church, but it's also a bit daunting and frightening. It was comforting because they could see God's sovereign power, even over those who would persecute them. But it was daunting and frightening because they could hear the strong language of judgment, even toward them. But before he gets into the judgment aspect, Jesus first positively, says positive things about this church in Theatera, doesn't he? He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. See, what he's describing here is a, a loving church, unlike the church at Ephesus, which we saw near the beginning of our series. They knew their first love. They were a church that cared for one another, which if taken too far is going to be and misinterpreted becomes part of the problem later on. They were also a, a serving church. They served one another and their community. They were, they're described here as a faithful church, one that had persevered through hardships. And they were a spiritually growing church, too, doing more than they did at first. Sounds like a, a terrific church on the outside, but there was a big problem and an issue that they were unwilling or unable to deal with, and Christ is pictured as coming in judgment because of it. And I think that gives us another point here, and this is point two on your outline. As a church, we should never be satisfied, no matter how many good things are going on. We should always be working and striving to be faithful in all ways to Christ. See, 60, 70, 80, or even 90% faithful is never a place to rest on our laurels. Never. We must always be striving to be faithful in every way, just as Christ has been 100% faithful to us. See, he lived a perfect life, a sinless life, a spotless life of grace and service, and he was executed on a cross in our place. Can we give anything less than all that he calls upon us to give? He loved us perfectly. He loved us completely. Can we rest in loving him just a little? See, I think that most churches today would be thrilled to have the first part of this assessment said about them, to have the Lord say these positive things. Sadly, sadly it's then easy to coast, to rest on our laurels, to look back on the history of a church and to say to ourselves, hey, we're doing pretty well, all things considering. So it's time to take a break. And that's where the problems often begin to control the church. Sadly, I've been in churches like that, and as soon as you rest on your laurels, that's when problems start. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet or prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. See, uh, 
despite the apparent faithfulness, the apparent love and ministry that uh, is seen in the church, they were being misled doctrinally and ethically. There was a woman that Jesus uh, calls Jezebel who was calling herself a prophetess and she was misleading them. Now let's, uh, let me say a few words about what it means to be a prophet. The simplest uh, definition of a prophet is somebody who speaks for God. A true prophet has authority because their words come from God, either through direct revelation or straight from God's word. And a false prophet teaches against God's commands and God's word. This, is, this so-called prophetess in Theatera was really not a prophet at all. Why? Because what she was proclaiming as coming from God was contrary to God's word. And this is uh, point three on your outline now. The church at Theatera, rather than correcting and disciplining, had tolerated her and allowed her to have influence in the church. Just like Jezebel in the Old Testament, she was corrupting them. The gods of her culture and the gods of the guilds it was what she was leading them to. You know, uh, the other day I picked up a beautiful-looking apple and took a bite out of it, only to find that it was rotting within. You see, this church looked good on the outside, but inside it was rotten. You know, uh, we too often look on the outside of churches and say, wow, God is really doing something in their midst. They are loving. Just look at all the people flooding to their services. They are reaching out to the community, really making an impact. People are changing but you just can't judge a book by its cover. Just like Theatera. Theatera was a growing church, a thriving church, filled with love and even a lot of faithfulness, but they were rotten inside because they were following a doctrine of compromise with the world. If you look in verse 20, we're told that she was teaching, what she was teaching was leading people to practice sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols. See, in the historical, cultural context, what she was telling them was that it was perfectly alright with God to go along to get along with the practice of the guilds. You see? I could just hear what she was, uh, was saying as I was studying this text, much like what uh, you're likely to hear in some megachurches today. No, you need to make a living. God doesn't expect you to sacrifice all that study and work to get you on that career path. God doesn't want you to be impoverished. God wants you to be successful and rich. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. God wants you to have money so that you can give more to missionaries and to building programs. God told me that this is all right with Him. It's all right to participate with the, what the guilds want. It's all right to participate with your particular political party. It's all right for you to participate in the worship of other beliefs. After all, they aren't real anyway. Remember, we live by grace and aren't under any law anymore. So you just need to ignore the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments. They aren't for this age of grace anyway. Our church is thriving and doing well. So obviously, God must be happy with us. Can't you just hear her? This message sounds 
Very good. Sounds very pleasing to us, doesn't it? Because it calls on us to take the easy path, the path of least resistance. Now, uh, likely in their hearts, they knew the message was wrong. But she had become a part of them, maybe even an important part of that church. And it's hard to tell someone of your own group, your own tribe, someone close to you, that they're acting and teaching things opposed to God's word. It's hard to discipline those who are part of us, isn't it? It's easier to just go along with them, even if it means hurting others. Let me talk about who Jezebel was and why uh, Jesus might be using this term. In the Old Testament, Jezebel was a queen of Israel at the time of the prophet Elijah. She was described as an extremely wicked woman, and she was a pagan daughter of a pagan king, and she really had no business being married to Ahab, the king of Israel. When she became queen, she, she were told that she first turned the heart of her husband and then the hearts of Israel to the worship of Baal. Her first official act, as we're uh, told in scripture, was to kill the prophets of the living God. She did away with God's spiritual leaders and replaced them with the prophets of Baal. She was definitely not somebody to be trifled with. Now, uh, we're, do you remember the story? While God's true prophet Elijah was happy to face off against 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel, but then he turns around and he runs for his life when he heard Jezebel was after him. She was not somebody to trifle with. Jezebel replaced God's word as given through his appointed prophets with a counterfeit one given by the prophets of Baal and Asherah. She sought to replace the worship of God completely with the worship of false gods and introduced idolatry once again to the people of Israel. See, the Jezebel of the Old Testament times and the prophetess in Theatera both tried to replace God's authoritative word with a poor substitute. And they were both also given opportunities to repent. Do you see that here? See, God is gracious. Even with the worst offenders, which uh, maybe you're like me, I praise God daily. You know, for Paul, that would, Paul wouldn't have had a chance, would he? Many of us here today wouldn't have had a chance if God weren't so gracious and forgiving even for me, the worst of sinners. See, her teachings were literally in the Greek, the deep things of Satan. Compromising the truth for a twisted acceptance of worldly practices. Telling people that good is evil and evil is good. See, the problem at Theatera is the problem that many modern churches face today. They had chosen Jezebel over Jesus. They had chosen compromise with falsehood over the truth of God's inerrant word. They chose to follow lies rather than to follow their Lord. They were uh, torn between two loves, between Jesus' love and Jesus' purity and his truth, and that of the love of the compromised world, which meant no disciplining on their own, one of their own, but rather they just went going along to get along so as not to make any waves. 
they probably thought they were being loving, that they had discovered ways of justifying their disobedience to themselves. Um, Dr. Joe Fote once put the matter this way, there is no more confused message that you and I could give to a lost and dying world than to live in sin and at the same time tell people about the transforming power of Jesus Christ. There isn't a more confusing thing we can do to our kids and the generation behind us. So uh, let me say this, and uh, I'll say this clear. This is the main point of all of this, and it's the title of your sermon. God will not use a compromised life to reach a compromised world. God will, will, in fact, use a life that's given over to him because that life is a demonstration of the message that through the power of Jesus Christ and his love that we can be transformed, that God can transform our lives and set us free. If we do not love the word of God and his truth, so very deeply and humbly, we too will fall quickly for the Jezebels in our world and in our churches today. It's very easy to fall for compromise with the world. It is the easy road. It is the road that allows us to live relatively comfortable with our neighbors. It is the road that allows us to live having all the ease and wealth the world has to offer. And it is point four on your outline. The road that tells us that we can have it all. We can have a little of Jesus and God, as well as all the enticing things the world has to offer. And this is the road that ultimately leads to destruction. There are many churches growing very fast today that have chosen to tell people all about grace and love, but say nothing about sinfulness and the corruption of this world. They live hand in hand with the world. And there are many who are flocking to hear those messages. And while that path looks terrific, the truth is, is that path leads away from God's kingdom and God's promises. If you look with me at verse 24 and following, Jesus says, Now I say to the rest of you in Theatera, to you who do not hold to her teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. The narrow path of truth ultimately leads to authority over the nations. That is God's gift. See, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, John describes Jesus as the Son of Man, whom Daniel in the Old Testament saw, foresaw. He is the one who receives ultimate authority over all the nations. And now we see that Jesus will give authority over all the nations uh, to the churches. And he will we will reign with him. The world and worldly powers that press in on us and pressure us 
and entice us today are ultimately all under Christ's authority and we will have authority over them in His time. And Jesus also tells them and us that He will give us the morning star. Well, what in the world does that mean? We know that the morning star is Venus, the brightest star in the sky, and it's the precursor to the new day. The morning star, see, represented hope after a long, dark night. We have real hope in a real world of suffering and death and trials and difficulties. And then in Revelation 22:16, the morning star is identified as Jesus himself. And so the greatest reward of all is an intimate relationship with the Son of God himself, in part now and in full when we see him face to face. The problem, as Corey Ten Boom told us in The Hiding Place, is this. Oh, this was the great ploy of Satan in that kingdom of his. To display such blatant evil, one could almost believe one's own secret sin didn't matter. So I wonder if it's the same with you and me today. We tend to justify our own compromise with the world and with sin as being not so bad. We see, we as individuals and as a church, easily fall into this trap, into the trap of compromise. It starts slowly with smaller things, then it snowballs into bigger things. So let me suggest that the mainline churches today have fallen into massive compromise with the world. It started slowly. It came on gradually. Until today, they fully embrace nearly everything that the world embraces. Let me give you one example. I remember having a, a conversation with the, the head chaplain who was doing the training in clinical pastoral education at uh, Wesley Hospital in Wichita while I was there doing some training in clinical pastoral education. We... Uh, one time we sat down and we had a talk. We talked for a while about his experience as a pastor in the United Methodist Church where he still served in a part-time role and which he, from which he was ordained and had his credentials to be a chaplain there at the hospital. I, uh, I asked him about one of the books that he had required for us to read which were basically taught that Buddhism and Christianity were compatible. That is, as long as we reinterpreted all the biblical language and imagery with Buddhist theology and ideas. I asked him what he believed about God and if he agreed with the author of that book. He told me that he used to believe in a personal triune God, a God who was three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but after years of ministering to people in the midst of pain and loss, he rejected that idea because he could no longer believe a personal God would allow people to suffer. Rather, he told me that he began to embrace the more progressive view of God as an impersonal force for good, which was just really another part of the goodness of humanity. So he began to journey into a more Buddhist belief. I then asked him how he could continue to serve as a as a Christian minister and as a Methodist pastor. 
He told me that the United Methodist Church had long ago embraced that view as as part of their theology, and that there were now more leaders in the Methodist Church who agreed with his worldview than those who held on to what he referred to as an antiquated traditional view of God. So I asked him if the congregations in which he served had, had some problem with these views. He said that most of them did not seem to know or to care. See, the change came on slowly, gradually, until few even cared anymore. Let me see if I can describe it another way. Some years ago, musicians noted that uh, errand boys in certain parts of London all whistled out of tune as they went about their work. And it turned out that it was because the bells of Westminster were slightly out of tune themselves. See, something had gone wrong with the chimes and they had become discordant. The boys did not know where there, where, uh, that there was anything wrong with those peals and quite unconsciously they had begun to copy the pitch. See, that's what happens. It comes on gradually. We tend to copy the people with whom we associate especially those whom we view as leaders. We borrow thoughts from the books we read and the programs to which we listen, almost without knowing it. God has given us his word, which is the ultimate and absolute pitch of life and living. And if we learn to sing by it, we will be able to easily detect the false in all the music of the world. In the Christian world today, there are plenty of areas of of good compromise that allow Christian brothers and sisters who hold to essentials of the faith to differ on non-essentials and compromise for the sake of unity so that we can work together on on important issues for the sake of the kingdom of Christ and and for the sake of the gospel. I think uh, the motto of our denomination puts it very well. And uh, by the way, it's on the front of your bulletins. In essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. There are many areas in which Christians can find unity and and even compromise in areas of non-essential. But in essentials, there must be unity. There must be oneness. And if we remain in harmony with God's Word, we will be able to discern what is essential and what is not. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful God, the the truth is, is that each and every one of us struggles with parts of this. We struggle with wanting to compromise those sins that we dearly love. It's so easy to compromise and be compromised, to go along, to get along. It is much harder to follow the narrow path of faithfulness, faithfulness to you, faithfulness to your inerrant word, faithfulness to the gospel. Lord, you are always faithful to us. You are always caring, always kind. You are 100% 
pure and faithful to us. And so, Lord, as we, we as your church here at Parkway, as we continue to follow this path of revitalization and revival in our midst, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us to discern, to discern those areas in which we have been compromised, so that we might indeed continue to pursue you in total faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for your guidance, your ministry in our midst through your Holy Spirit. We pray that you will continue to guide each one of us. Forgive us, Lord, for the areas we have failed. and Teach us to follow you more closely. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.